Matthew's Gospel, the promised Messiah. Last week we heard about Mark's Gospel, and I know that there were some golden nuggets there to be found. And I pray that Matthew holds a similar story, and that we grow in knowledge, grace, and love as we investigate more into this Gospel. Now, the Gospel of Matthew occupies pride of place in all early books of the New Testament, where in fact, it is quite special for two reasons. Firstly, because the primitive church attended a particular importance to the gospel as it offered the most complete and comprehensive account of the life and teachings of Jesus. In those early days, stroke centuries, Matthew's gospel was particularly used in all aspects of worship, preaching and teaching. In fact, more than any of the other Gospels. And secondly, Matthew is the Jewish Gospel. It sets the story of Jesus as the Messiah against its Old Testament background, where it has been affectionately known as the transitional Gospel, linking together both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, its very position informs us to what God has promised of old. He has fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And you can understand why it rightly comes immediately after the books that made up the Hebrew Scriptures. But I like it for another reason. For if you were a Jew, and although to read the New Testament is forbidden, if you turned over a page to the New Testament... You came face to face with all the Jewish prophets. Listen to these opening verses. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and so on. You could not get a more Jewish background than that. I remember a former Hasidic Jew, black hat and coat type, telling me that one day he hid under his bedclothes, reading Matthew's Gospel, thinking that God could not see him there. And he came face to face with these Jewish patriots, thinking, these Christians have stolen our prophets. Well, he saw the light. Each Gospel has its unique opening and understanding of that gospel. As I said earlier, Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David, the great king of Israel. He is the son of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Think about it. The genealogy that follows in verses 2 to 16, it's not just a boring list of names, for it shares something important. So in typical Jewish fashion, the writer divides it into three sections of 14 names each. We start from Abraham to David, then David to Jeconiah, the last king of, the Is of Israel, and the third from Babylon captivity to the birth of Jesus. Note that all sections end with the name of a king. David was the king who established the kingdom. 
Jeconiah, the king who lost the kingdom. Jesus, who is called the Christ, who restored the kingdom. Turn with me figuratively to chapter 2. And we hear the story of Jesus born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod. And wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. Just think about that well-known passage for a minute and just let it rest over you. These men were seeking a king who were first guided by a star and later by scripture. Check out chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And what did they do when they found him? They worshipped him and offered their gifts. However, had you ever thought of this? The act of worship represents that of the Gentile or heathen seeking Jesus, bowing before him, and giving gifts worthy of a king. Now remember, Matthew is writing to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And here Matthew is telling them that the Messiah has a worldwide mission to fulfill, as the prophets had predicted. But there is one word in the story of the Magi that sticks out. They worshipped him. Now, where in Mark's gospel, the word immediately is his key. In Matthew, the words they worshipped him are paramount in his. Again and again, we read of people coming to Jesus and offering their worship. Look up the man suffering with leprosy, chapter 8, verse 2. The ruler of the synagogue at Capernaum, chapter 9, verse 18. The disciples after the storm on the lake, 14, 33. The Canaanite woman, 15, 25. The mother of the sons of of Zebedee, 20, 20. The disciples after the resurrection, 28, verse 9 and 17. In each situation, the verb proskunino, to give homage, to worship, is used. To us as New Testament Gentiles and readers, certain terms used pass over us without meaning. And the son of David, the first title given to Jesus in Matthew, is one. In fact, it is found several times in Matthew's Gospel, so What does it mean? Firstly, it is a royal title. As Jesus is the man born to be king. You see, the Jews at this time were looking for the coming of a king, the Messiah as they called him. It is a Hebrew word, which means the anointed one, and which is in Greek becomes Christos, Christ. The anointed king or Messiah, whom the Jews were looking for, would raise them up and rescue them from their foes, the Romans. 
and establish his rule among them, like David did as the illustrious warrior king who conquered and reigned of old. So it was not only a messianic title, but one that held political overtones as well. And you can understand why Jesus did not want to be depicted in that way. It was the wrong image, as he had come to save his people from their sins, not from their Roman masters. The response also leads to Jesus asking the Pharisees a question. When he says to them, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? They responded, the son of David. Now listen to Jesus' response. How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put thy enemies under thy feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? It's a logical question. And Jesus cites Psalm 110 verse 1 in his question. So his words are saying that the Christ or their Messiah must be more than the son of David. It is by the Holy Spirit himself that David calls the Messiah his Lord, not his son, and sees him exalted at the right hand of God, victorious over his foes. So the question of whose son is the Messiah It is more than the son of David. He is the son of God, whose throne is in heaven and whose kingdom rules over all. But that now poses another question. What is meant by the kingdom? The kingdom appears no less than 80 times in the Gospels. And while it is used in Matthew, its significance is important as it refers to a kingdom having a king. Now, Matthew cites a difference to the other Gospels. The other Gospels refer to the kingdom of God, while Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. So why the difference? Think about it. Matthew is writing to the Jews. And the Jews in the Old Testament used the term kingdom of heaven. You see, they they avoided using the word God and substituted it with the kingdom of heaven. It means the same, but no committed Jew would use the word God. Think of the word we know as Yahweh. We have it, Y-A-H-W-E-H. Even the Jews just used consonants, not vowels, and said YHWH instead. So this gospel is full of Old Testament reference and meaning. Getting us past the genealogy and the birth of Jesus, 
We read verses familiar to us. And we can so easily miss what was meant for the reader, but not so easy for the Jewish reader. Matthew tells us the story of the nativity from the point of Joseph, whereas Luke tells us that from the point of Mary. The accounts are different, but do not contradict. Both say that Joseph is the husband of Mary, but not the father of Jesus. Both say that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit while she was still a virgin. But note what is said in verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel which means God with us. Now that's quoting Isaiah 7.14. In chapter 2, we meet more, we read more references to the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Jesus. When Herod asked the Jewish priests and scribes where the Messiah was to be born, they told him at once, in Bethlehem of Judea, citing the words of Micah, the prophet. Furthermore, it says that from Bethlehem would emerge a ruler to govern God's people, Israel. In verses 13 to 15 of chapter 2, we read of the sudden journey to Egypt, where the family remains until Herod has died. Another reference to Old Testament prophecy For in Hosea 11, we read, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Words originally referring to Moses, but Matthew uses it as a parallel between that of Israel and the life of the Messiah. Should we wish to study further, there are other references to Old Testament literature claiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And no doubt this struck a chord with some Jewish readers, for it shows that Jesus' earthly mission was no haphazard affair, orchestrated by man, but rather a divine purpose and plan. You see, Christianity is not a new revelation, but rather the consummation of Judaism, or simply put, the completion of what had been promised. There are so many references to Old Testament literature and Matthew's Gospel. But there is also a Jewish theme or order in his writing, which we will now look at. But as I said last week with Mark, these Gospels are not biographies, but rather portraits written by individuals. And as we know of Matthew being a tax collector, he had a certain leaning towards figures and numbers. And this is clearly seen in the brilliant series, The Chosen, where within it, it brings humor into normal seriousness. In Matthew's account, we are faced with a topical order rather than a chronological order. Each ending with the phrase, 
When Jesus finished these sayings, notifying the reader that here ends the first, second, third lesson of Jesus the Messiah. In fact, there are five speeches, with the first being known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. Here we are drawn to the ethics in this first conversation. It's about the ethics of the kingdom. It leads us into three Jewish duties, such as almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, with that of trusting in God's fatherly care. In this section, Jesus stresses the quality of life and standards and behavior for those who follow God's sovereign rule. Next relates to the 12 apostles. Ever wondered why Jesus chose 12? It goes back to the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. The sons of Jacob. Look it up. These 12 apostles in chapter 10 are set out on their missionary journey and are shown as being servants of the kingdom. Here Jesus' teaching has been compiled from various sources, but not all applies to their immediate mission, but rather as a guide to all missionaries of the early church. Again in chapter 13, the third is a collection of Jesus' teaching where seven parables are brought together, only four being recorded in Matthew. These parables express the progress of the kingdom from its small beginnings to reaching the whole world, leading to what Jesus refers to as the close of the age, verse 39 and 40. In chapter 18 lies a collection of sayings relating to the fellowship of the kingdom. Like a little instruction manual for the church, with church discipline, personal relationships, and a forgiving spirit, it aptly ends with the parable of the unmerciful servant. Last of all, comes from the discussion on the Sermon on the Mount, which refers to the last times and the coming of the Son of Man. Generally, this is referred as to the consummation of the kingdom, where the church must suffer and witness before Christ returns. Much of the, much of the language is apocalyptic and expressed in pictorial terms. There is so much more relating to the teachings of Jesus, but the main features can be summed up in five statements. One, it is the kingly authority of Jesus which underlines or underlies the teaching and challenges the Jewish authorities. I'll say that again. It is the kingly authority of Jesus which underlies the teaching and challenges the Jewish authorities. Point two, its main emphasis is on the kingdom or sovereign rule of God. Point three, its strong moral code runs through the teaching which relates to life. Four, 
the interest in eschatology, the last things, including the second coming and judgment. Five, the parables and picture form in which the teaching is presented. In his closing verses, Matthew informs us that the risen Christ claims total authority and all nations are to be told of the good news of Jesus Christ. The church is now born and Jesus promises us that he will be with us always to the end of time. But the challenge is left with us now to go and tell others about Jesus, his love, his resurrection, and life eternal through the forgiveness of sins. That's your role, that's my role. And we have the opportunity to do so this coming week. Amen.